Good morning. I've got the job of breaking up the party. Sure is fun to sit up here and watch. We'll start back in 20 minutes. The Lord is here. The Lord's presence is here. Anyone else sensing what the Lord is up to? I had someone tell me this week, it's actually Luke, this young man here. He said, I feel like I'm getting in on the ground level. Anybody else sense that? Church has been around over four decades. The Lord has brought amazing people, amazing leaders over the years, and we're grateful for it because you're always building on the foundation, right? But God's doing something. And so we invite you to get in on the ground level because in the coming months, God is going to bring his kingdom. He's going to build this church. He's going to plant other churches. He's going to reach the lost. He's going to heal the sick. So we invite you this morning, come get in on the ground level with us. We want to get to know you. We've got things on Sunday morning, obviously, prayer, intercession meets before this. We worship together in song and sacraments in the scriptures. And then we have these things called groups. It's a pretty fancy name, isn't it? We deliberated. What do we call them? How about groups? And we have 28 groups that meet all over the city at different times. We have some in Edmond, some in Oklahoma City, other places. Bethany may have one in Midwest City. That may have been a prophetic word if we don't. So we have 28 groups that are meeting, and we just relaunched these, and there are amazing things going on. Connie sent out an email that collated a number of the stories, and it is amazing what God is doing. And we're going to be sharing over Advent. We'll make some time to hear what God is doing in your groups. That's part of what what we want to do is we want everyone to contribute, everyone to participate, and the best way to do that is in small groups in homes. We have a few that meet here, but most of them are in homes, just like the early church. Can you believe it's almost Advent? It's almost Christmas? Anybody been in a shopping center, a store, a restaurant, and heard the Christmas music and been startled? I was like, wait, what? 65 degrees outside, and it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. That's the only time you hear me sing. So it's dawning. It's dawning, Christmas is here, and we are really excited about Advent. Um, Sometimes Christmas can be something that you just kind of do out of duty. Oh yeah, it's Christmas, we are excited because God is birthing something new with us. So it's exciting to celebrate Advent, the birth of Jesus, the birth of our Lord, while the Lord is doing new things among us. We're uh, finishing our series today on 1 Corinthians. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's been a journey, several months. We're on chapter 15 today. There is a 16th chapter, and it really deals with Paul giving some specific instructions to the church at Corinth about an offering that he's taking up. It's important, but we're going to conclude with chapter 15 today, and it is about the resurrection. If you remember, if you've been here with us, you'll remember this. If not, I'll uh, do a little refresh. 
this letter was written, these 16 chapters were written to a church planted in ancient Greece in Corinth. And Paul has addressed all kinds of problems with them. They don't understand the cross. They've drifted away from the message of the cross. Their spirituality is off. They can't seem to get that right. They think that they've almost arrived in this heavenly existence. Um, They're not very respectful of each other. All kinds of things are going on. And this is yet another problem that Paul is addressing in chapter 15. And that problem is they did not believe in resurrection of the body. Now, if you think about this, it, it makes sense. You can look at this later, but in Acts 17, Paul goes and he is engaging the people at Athens, which is not far from Corinth, and he's talking to them about the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And the people in Athens are like, what is this dude? What is it? What's a message he's bringing? Well, Corinth lives in the shadow of Athens, so they're influenced by the philosophy that's there. And really, Plato, the philosopher Plato, won the day. His idea of what happened when a human being died was you, your soul leaves your body. You're delivered from the prison house of the physical body. And Paul says, that is not right. If you read the Old Testament scriptures, you are with your body. And the Lord renews and transforms that. And if you want to know what it looks like, according to the Christian vision of things, look at Jesus. He isn't emancipated from his body. His body is transfigured and transformed into a resurrection state. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage. There's 58 verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Actually, what I'm going to do, so you know what's going on here, I'm going to focus on the first 11 verses. And that's where Paul is talking primarily about the resurrection of Jesus. And then he's going to make some comments about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of believers in general. And then lastly, he's going to make some observations, give some instructions on what the resurrection body is like. But I'm going to focus on that first part because it's really most important. Everything else flows out of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Some of you, because we're in 2019, might be influenced by a materialistic culture. And by that I mean we explain things away in a materialist fashion. So the idea of a physical bodily resurrection may blow your mind a little bit. Anybody sense that? As I was reading this passage this week, I was thinking about what different colleagues and what different students said in the academy when I taught in college, and many of them said, I just can't believe this. I don't believe it. I haven't seen anyone raised from the dead. And I just found myself afresh this week, humbling my mind and heart before this text. There is a physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago. And he's going to raise every human being from the dead. And we will stand before him and give account for the deeds done in our body. And modern people may not like to hear that, but it's going to happen. And so this is the word of the Lord for us in 2019. Some instruction on what the resurrection is and what it's not. Paul's going to show us that it's good news. It's the gospel of 
the resurrection. The first thing he's pointing out in verses 1 through 11 is this is centered on the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the basis. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is why we were here this morning. This is why we meet in groups. This is why we share the love of God, share the kingdom of God with people in our workplace. Let's read verses 1 through 11, and then I'll go back and make a few comments. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. At verse 3, for I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. So in these verses here, Paul is centering on the resurrection of Christ, the foundation of the gospel. This is the heart of who we are, that the Father loves us, that the Father has sent his Son, that he was crucified, that he was raised on our behalf. And Paul's giving three testimonies here. If you look at the text, Testimony from the church, testimony from scripture, testimony from eyewitnesses, including Paul himself. Look at verses one to three. One of the things he's saying in this section is that the gospel of the resurrection is received and it saves. Look at the verbs here. Paul is reminding them because they tend to be forgetful. What is he reminding them of? The essence of the Christian tradition, what is handed down from Jesus to the apostles, to the church. If you look at this here, you can see one of the earliest Christian creeds right here. Christ died for our sins, verse 3, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There's a early creed here that the church would have recited regularly, and here we are in 2019 studying it. Look at what Paul says here. He says, not only am I reminding you of this, not only do you receive it, not only do we pass it on, but you are saved by this message of the resurrection. This isn't just a nice philosophy, a nice approach to life. This message actually rescues lost people like you and me. When we get together, we talk about it. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. He's up to something. 
He takes people, broken people, and rearranges their lives. Romans 10, 9 to 10 says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you remember anything this morning, I want you to hear this. We have what's called the apologetic of changed lives. May not be able to convince someone of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but church, you know what we can do? We can say, look at me. Look at what he's doing in this community of people. His resurrection power is changing us at the core of who we are. We have people in this room right now who've been set free from every addiction you can imagine. We've, ha- we've got people in this room who are being transformed from something that they were into something completely different. The resurrection power of the Lord Jesus is operating in us. That is the greatest apologetic or argument for Christianity on the planet right now. So I invite you, if you, like the rest of us, are struggling with something, an addiction, a hidden sin, something that you've been entrapped in for 40, 50 years, hatred for someone, give it up today. Reach out to the resurrected Jesus and say, I need you to save me today. This is the essence of what Paul is talking about. And we know from the previous chapters, the Corinthian people were pretty messed up, weren't they? So when he says this gospel of the resurrection has saved you and is saving you, we know many of the particular things that they're being saved from. Do you remember back at chapter 6? He mentions all of these various things, thievery, homosexuality, sexual brokenness, all of these various things. And he says, such were some of you, Corinthians, but you've been washed. You've been transformed. You've been justified by the resurrected Jesus. This is who we are, and this is what we're about. So as you look at your life right now, what might Jesus save you from? Christians get saved on a daily basis. Did you know that? I get saved every day. Anybody else? There is that moment when you meet Jesus, like Paul did, which we're going to talk about, but then in an ongoing way, he saves us each day. We live into the rescue that the resurrected Jesus gives us. Look at what Paul says. He's saying not only is there the testimony of the church, but there's the testimony of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Think about it. There was no New Testament at this time. It was being lived and written. But when Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is testified to in the scriptures, it's the Old Testament. Let me just give you a little sample of the things that he would have been talking about. These are passages that show up in the Gospels. Genesis 22, where Abraham offers Isaac, it becomes the type of a father offering the son. And it's mentioned in John 3.16, using the same language. Psalm 22, another place in the Old Testament that describes crucifixion. Jesus actually takes the words from Psalm 22 and recites them in his final breaths. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Isaiah 53, another place in the scriptures where it clearly declares that the suffering servant would come and pay the price for guilty people and turn them into blameless, righteous people before God. Psalm 16, another place where Jesus points this out and he says, my body will rejoice in hope. Lord, you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will fill me with joy in your presence. We could go on and on, but these are the kinds of passages that Paul, as a good Jewish rabbi, is pointing to the Old Testament and saying, can't you see? God has been shouting to the human race that a Messiah would come and die and be raised and ascend to the Father. Psalm 110, another one that speaks very clearly about that. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You can also see what is called the third day tradition. In Hosea 6, it mentions that the Lord will raise up his people and he will raise up his servant on the third day. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians the resurrection is preached to you through these scriptures. Something else that he transitions into here as he's talking about the resurrection of Christ is that there are numerous eyewitnesses. Look at verses six and seven. He clicks through these. He says Cephas, which is an Aramaic word for Peter. He doesn't even mention this by name, but there's three women that Jesus appears to first. Mary Magdalene is the first person who was witness to the resurrection. He says the 12 How could this be? The 12? I thought Judas hanged himself. What Paul is referencing here is what happens in Acts 1. Judas is replaced by Matthias. And so Paul is letting us know that there were numerous appearances. The Gospels give account to this. And then over 500 brothers and sisters. Perhaps this happened. We're not sure. The text doesn't say. But perhaps this happened in Matthew 28 when they were meeting. Perhaps it's referencing the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1. We're not sure. Then he appears to James, the brother of Jesus. Then he appears to all of the apostles. One of the early church fathers named Cyril, he said, if you don't believe the testimony of the scriptures, if you don't believe the testimony of the 12, if you don't believe the testimony of the 500, if you don't believe the testimony of James, then how about believing an enemy of Christ himself, Paul. So Paul, at verses 8 to 11, describes his encounter with the risen Jesus. Now ponder that for a moment. Sometimes we just think, oh, it's the Apostle Paul. Man, he was a a great apostle. This dude hated Christ. He persecuted the church. He was engaged in criminal activity. And the Lord said, I want him. Seriously, Lord? Your ways are very different. You pick the last of all, the least of all. Look at how Paul describes himself here. Paul says at verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul uses some language in here that is stunning. 
When he talks about being untimely born, he means he wasn't born at the time the other apostles were so that he could be part of that original group. But the word actually means miscarried fetus. When I look at the apostles, Paul says, I am like an aborted fetus. I am nothing. Some commentators think that actually some of the Corinthians may have used this as a derogatory term to call him that, out of mockery. Paul, you're, not, you're nowhere near the other apostles. You're like a miscarriage. So Paul is admitting here that yes, he's out of time. He's out of this sequence, but the Lord appeared to him nonetheless. He appears to him in Acts 9. You can read about it. And it is a direct face-to-face encounter that this persecutor of the church has with the Lord Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus. It's not a vision, but it's a direct physical appearance of the Lord Jesus to him. Think about this. The Lord transforms this Christ-hater into a Christ-lover a church persecutor, and to a church planter. That is the kind of Lord we serve. Anybody else feel disqualified today? Did you do something this week? Do something this life that you feel disqualified? Join the club. Is anyone more disqualified than the Apostle Paul? I mean, he is out violently attacking the church, doing everything he can to stamp out the fire of the gospel. He hates Christ. He hates his people. And Jesus appears to him in his mercy and grace and redirects his whole life. And Paul gives himself to this wholeheartedly. And he says at verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. St. Augustine says this about Paul. Paul did not labor to receive grace, but he received grace so that he might labor. So today the Lord invites us to labor, to go for it, to throw yourself completely into being a follower of Jesus by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that energizes us. This is not duty. This is not obligation. This is not morality. This is called encountering the Lord Jesus together and throwing yourself completely into this. So Paul is laying out the foundation, the resurrection of Jesus is everything emanates from this. Everything flows from this. And then I just want to make a few comments here because it's important to see the way he applies this in the second section here from verses 12 to 34 Paul talks about the resurrection of the dead. So if Christ is raised from the dead in a physical body, what about us? The Corinthians are very confused, so he's trying to clarify. And I want to read verses 12 through 14. I'm just going to read in a few places, make a few comments, show you a couple of images, and then we'll have some ministry time. Verses 12 through 14, he's switching gears here from the resurrection of Christ, now the resurrection of the dead in general. And look what he says at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you 
Corinthians, say that there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain or empty, and your faith has been in vain or empty. So what Paul is saying here is, if there is no physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, then what we're doing is useless and pointless. It's all a sham. And I can tell you right now, people don't die for a sham. Those 500 that are mentioned here, the 12, Paul himself, the majority of them died martyrs' deaths. People don't die over shams. This is literally something that happened. So Paul says at verses 20 and 23, look, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in their own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What is Paul talking about here? What in the world are first fruits? Paul's using an image, a metaphor from the Old Testament, where they would bring a small portion of the grain that had risen and they would offer it to God and they'd say, we are guaranteed the full harvest. You will bring it. You are the sovereign Lord. So here is the first fruits of the harvest. And in the same way, Christ is the first fruits because he is raised from the dead. The Lord guarantees that we too will be raised from the dead. He is our Passover and he is our first fruits. Isn't there all kinds of murkiness? I mean, I have questions. Now, wait, what, what is the resurrection body supposed to look like? If you want to know very simply, as it is with Christ, so it is with us. As it is with Christ, so it is with us. We're going to look at this shortly, but you can read the gospel accounts. There is something very identifiable and recognizable about Jesus. He appears to Thomas, and Thomas is stunned. He sees the wounds of Christ. He sees him. There's something recognizable, and he says, my Lord, my God. So there's something about the resurrection body that's discernible. But at the same time, Jesus does some things that normal bodies don't do. He walks through walls. He can appear in various places. So we're going to see Paul explain what the resurrection body was like for him and what it's like for us. And the point of these verses also is that Adam screwed everything up. God created Adam. He derailed God's plan to have human beings rule and reign with him. And so Christ is the last Adam, the second Adam, who comes and restores and recapitulates all of that. Look at verses 24 through 34. I'm going to let you read these later. I'm going to give you a little summary of this as Paul is talking about resurrection bodies. He lays out a particular context here. He lays out a, a an eschatological context, a context of the end times. And Paul says that you will receive a resurrection body at the second coming of Christ. When Christ hands over the kingdom, the rule to the Father, and God will put the threat of death under Christ's feet. 
and Christ and God will rule over all and God's glory will fill all. You can go back and look at that 24 through 34. But what Paul is trying to do here is establish that the resurrection is an already and not yet thing. The resurrection has happened with Christ and the resurrection power of God is operating among you, but it's not yet fully consummated. Some of you remember we've been using this World War II illustration and it's pertinent for this as well. The already and the not yet of the resurrection. Do you remember I, I shared a, a word picture when Mike has shared it as well in World War II? The, in 1944, D-Day, June 6th, the Allied troops stormed the beaches at Normandy. And it pretty much was war over, game over at that point for the Americans and the Allied troops. But it took 11 months of battling and fighting the Germans and the Axis troops until May of 45 when they surrendered. Paul is saying the same thing here. The church is in battle. Yes, we are resurrection people. Yes, the Lord will raise us from the dead, but now is the day of battle. We live in that interim between the already and the not yet. Very quickly here, I want us to end with this, a look at the resurrection body. This is the third aspect of the resurrection that Paul is pointing out here. I know there's a lot here. You can go back and look at the details. I just want to sketch this out as we conclude this beautiful letter to the Corinthians. What Paul is doing in 35 through 58 is he's talking about how the resurrection transforms our human body and ensures triumph over death. I'm going to read 35 through 38 quickly here, make a few comments, show you an image. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised, Paul? What kind of body do they What kind of body do they come? With what kind of body do they come? <laughs> he holds nothing back here, fool. <laughs> What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. I've put a bulb, a flower up here, if you'll put that image of a lily, and this illustrates what Paul is talking about. If you look there on the lower left, you can see this kind of strange bulb. Looks kind of like an onion. It's got some roots growing out of it. Gets planted in the ground, and it develops from this kind of peculiar, odd-looking onion-shaped seed that's planted in the ground into a glorious, beautiful, blossoming lily. And Paul is pointing to nature, and Paul is saying, nature itself preaches resurrection. Look around you, Romans 1. Nature is testifying that life comes out, fullness comes out only after something is planted and died. He goes on to give other illustrations. Look at verses 50 through 58. Not going to read this, but what Paul says in verses 50 through 53 is he says, We will all be changed, we will all enter the kingdom of God, all believers. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And then he gives some encouragement flowing out of this. So the point of this is there is some kind of continuity, the resurrection body of Jesus. 
We can see it. There's something of him there, but something transfigured. He's not completely different. And so it is with us. I was reflecting this week on on this, and I was thinking about my 1986 Honda Accord. And I was thinking, that's my car. It was white with blue interior. And I was picturing what would happen if resurrection power hit my 1986 Accord. And I was imagining it would still remain the 1986 hatchback, but it would run on new fuel. And it would probably have a super hydro-powered engine. And it would have new wheels and tires, but you could still look at it and say, that's a 1986 Honda Accord. I also thought of, you can put this image up here, I thought of Back to the Future, the 1982 DeLorean. I am not a car person, so you will see that very quickly, I will acknowledge, but our resurrection body will be overhauled in some way. It will be recognizable, it will be discernible, but it's going to have a flux capacitor. It's going to have something that goes on from the soles of the feet to the top of the head. We're going to get an upgrade, as Wallace has been talking about. We're going to move into the back to the future DeLorean where you don't need roads anymore. That's what the scientist says. So there's something that resembles us. It is us. We have this body forever. But like Christ, we will be raised, we will be transfigured, we will be transformed to the glory of God so that we can live in the Lord's kingdom on the earth. All of this made new. There's something very physical. We don't escape all of this material stuff. The Lord renews it and transfigures it and makes it what he intended from the beginning. I couldn't help but think of those of us with disabled bodies, diseased bodies, it's not just going to be a little tweak here or there. The Lord is going to refashion and reform diseased, broken, disabled bodies so that they function the way that the Lord intended from the beginning. This is good news. This is good news. The Lord is going to take us in our bodies Body, soul, and spirit will be transfigured for the glory of God, and we will live with him and be with him forever. So, Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for this letter to the Corinthians. Thank you, Lord, that in all of their brokenness, we can identify with them. They were broken and confused, and they needed resurrection power. And I thank you that you gave it to him. 2,000 years ago, you brought resurrection power to the people of Corinth. And so, Lord, I ask you here in Oklahoma City at our Lord's Church in the coming days, the coming weeks, that we would experience and walk in the resurrection power of the crucified, risen Lord Jesus. I want us to take a moment here. Let's take about 20 seconds, and I want us to worship him in silence. 
Silence is a commodity. Silence is a good thing these days, and we don't have enough of it. So I just want us to take a moment, even if that's a little bit awkward, and worship the Lord for his resurrection and our coming resurrection in silence.